Uh, as Paul was praying this morning for Afghanistan, um, uh, if you do not watch the news or listen to the radio, uh, you don't know that the Taliban has taken over the Afghan capital. Afghanistan has not been a safe place for Christians. And now it's that much more dangerous. Uh, and so, as we did this morning, please pray for our brothers and sisters who are there. I'm sure there is fear and uncertainty. Uh, and so, uh, as you hear updates in the news, pray for the persecuted church and for the people of Afghanistan. Pray for our mission partners. We have no one in Afghanistan, but we do have missionaries who are in hard places, who are also in danger. And so we want to lift them up to God. At any moment, there could be a knock on the door. And people could die. They and their family. Simply for proclaiming and identifying with Christ. How do those Christians in that country, how are they feeling and thinking this morning? How are they processing the threat that they now face? There have to be voices that call them to renounce Christ, run away, choose a different religion, Pretend you don't believe what you do believe. Deny the faith. It's a dangerous time and place. Where do they find hope? Where do they find courage? Where do they go to find a refuge? What sustains them? What sustains us as Christians? Those sorts of themes, those questions and answers are exactly what our text this morning addresses. And so, uh, please turn in your Bible with me to Psalm 11. Psalm 11. And it's David who is speaking. And this is what he writes. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, 
What can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let God rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. This psalm can uh, be broken down pretty easily into three parts. Uh, In verses 1 to 3 is uh, the temptation that David faces. What is the, the, the heat? What is the situation that he's in? What is the pressure being exerted upon him that does not flow from faith? Verses Four to five is David's response. How does he combat that temptation? What reality shapes his thinking and his actions? And then six to seven is the result. What is the ultimate outcome for those who live by faith and those who do not? In verse one, David begins his psalm with a declaration that the Lord is his hope and safety. In the Lord, I take refuge. He is saying, in my present circumstance, it may be uncertain, but I'm going to entrust myself to my unfailing God. Before anything else is said, David sets the trajectory of his heart and his mind. In the Lord, I take refuge. Why? Because David, at this very moment, is in imminent danger. Verse 2, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrows to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Somebody or somebodies are after him. And they mean to do him harm. Uh, David calls them the wicked. Uh, that, that term doesn't just mean those that do wrong things. But rather, the wicked are those who oppose God and his servants. Their arrows are set to destroy or to kill David. We don't know the circumstances of this psalm. But most scholars tend to think uh, that it's either when David was on the run from King Saul, or later in David's life when he was fleeing from Absalom his son, 
Both men wanted to kill David and to keep or get the throne for themselves. Whether it's one of those situations or another, David feels a certain sense of of being overwhelmed. And there is this temptation to flee. Wouldn't it be easier to run away and deny what God has promised? God promised David that his son would sit on the throne forever. The voices are saying, instead of trusting the Lord to overcome your enemies, flee. Find safety and security somewhere else, in someone else, or in something else. And so in verse 1, David's response to the voices is saying, uh, uh, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? To whose voice is the psalm referring? Who is saying this to David? Who is suggesting that he should just turn tail and run? We don't know. Maybe it, it was a trusted advisor or a friend or a family member. All they wanted to do is keep David safe. Or maybe it was a secret enemy who wanted to discourage David and get him to give up. Or maybe it was David's own heart that was tired or scared and wanted to run away. Whoever is speaking And whatever the motive, the voice says danger is all around you. You don't even know where your enemy is at and how they're going to come at you. Verse 2 says that they shoot in the dark. They're hidden. They're in the shadows. And so the best thing you can do is to get out while you still have time. Flee to your mountain, it says in verse 2. That's an interesting phrase. Flee to your mountain. The temple in Jerusalem was on a mountain, but that's not what the voice says, is it? The, the, the temple in Jerusalem was on a mount, and it represented God's covenant presence and his redemptive purposes for his people and for David. And that temple in Jerusalem on a mount harkened back to the garden temple of God, which the Old Testament calls the mountain of God. It's where humanity would meet and commune with God in the innocence of the garden before sin entered our world. But the voice doesn't say 
flee to the mountain of God or flee to the temple of God, but flee to your mountain. Go where you think you will find rest and hope and contentment. Go to that place where you will feel better. Go, uh, in, in our language, it would be go to your happy place. It's a call and a temptation to flee from the circumstances God had providentially called David to face. To escape to wherever David's flesh desired to go. And to look for a refuge for comfort and peace in something other than God. Now I don't know what David's mountain could have been. I don't know where he would have gone or what he would have done in his flesh. It could have been a, 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 a specific place or maybe a different time in his life. Maybe it was to, to long to go back to Bethlehem. Just, let me just be a shepherd. Life certainly was easier then. We do that, don't we? We, we reminisce. And we want to go back to what we think is a better time and a better place. Forgetting all the dangers that were there. Just think of Israel in the, in the wilderness. How many times did they complain? Oh, let us go back to Egypt. This manna, we eat this stuff every day. Let us go back where we had cucumbers and onions and leeks. Oh, life was so grand then. Really? When you were enslaved and beaten... When they killed your children? Maybe it wasn't a particular place or a particular time in David's life that was uh, the temptation. Uh, Maybe it was the temptation to make treaties with the godless nations around him just to gain military power and might. My enemies will think twice if they know I have strong friends, forgetting that he has the strongest friend already. Or perhaps like his son David, he would have run after pleasure. Women, wine, and song to forget about troubles of life for at least for a while. The voices say, flee to your mountain, or a call to find hope, to find rescue, and to find contentment someplace other than with God. And if we're honest, we all face that same temptation, don't we? Each one of us has a mountain that calls to us. 
Come to me. It almost sounds like God, doesn't it? Come to me, all who are weak and heaven laden, and I will give you peace, I will give you contentment. But it's false. There's only one that can give us life. There's only one that can rescue us. There's only one that can save us from our enemies. There's only one that can give us peace. There's only one that is a true refuge for us. We each have mountains, places or activities or identities that call to us and promise us a feeling of hope and contentment. Maybe when we're stressed out, we take drugs or drink alcohol too much. Or uh, or, or, since those are frowned upon in Christian circles, maybe we just misuse food. That every time we're stressed, instead of facing the problem and going to God, we shove Twinkies in our mouth. Just so we feel better. We turn to some substance, be it legal or illegal, to make us feel better. Or perhaps our refuge is achievement, recognition, or the approval of others. I have to be the best. I'll cheat on my exam so that I don't mess up my 4.0. Because that's so important to me. Because that's my identity. I'm the A student. Or I have to get into the right college or get the promotion. I'll do whatever I have to to keep my reputation of being the best or the smartest. And the hard work that we do, it's not motivated because it's a stewardship from God but it's more the desire to be better than everybody else so that I can feel good about myself. Or maybe uh, we run to the mountain of relationships. I want to be everyone's BFF. Everyone's got to like me. Or I need a, a wife. I need a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever. I feel incomplete without someone else. And so sometimes those relationships are misused and they become less about loving the other person and more about how that person loves us. And so we use them to make ourselves feel better, to build our own ego. Perhaps my identity is wrapped up in what that one person thinks about me. I'm okay if they think I'm okay. If they're unhappy with me, then my world falls apart.
The rest of the world can think I'm a jerk, as long as Jennifer thinks I'm wonderful. (laughs) Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The things that I mentioned are not necessarily bad in themselves, are they? If I'm sick or in pain, I am grateful for modern medicine. If I get to spend a night having pizza and watching a movie with friends, that's great. Achievement and competition can be fun and good. And I am forever grateful for Jennifer and that she does think I'm wonderful. But when we take these gifts that come from God and we make them the substance of our refuge, the the very grounding of our hope, then something is wrong. It's a misplaced faith. None of those things that I mentioned, though they be good, are meant to carry the weight of the world for us. To be the source of our contentment. They cannot stand up to that kind of pressure, and they will not provide us with the ultimate safety and security that we desire. They will not satisfy because they're all temporal and passing away. They are good gifts from our good God, but what they're meant to do is give us a taste of His glory and all the things that He wants to give to us. There is only one sure foundation, only one true place of safety and refuge. We have only one Savior, and the good gifts we have should be enjoyed to His glory. When we take God's gift and we make it our mountain of refuge, we will be disappointed. These gifts were never meant to bear that burden or provide us with ultimate satisfaction. When we place our hope on the gift rather than the giver, then in that moment the gift actually becomes our idol. It becomes our functional God whose command we will obey. And so we orient all of life towards it and do whatever we must in order to have it, whatever it is. Hopefully as I say those things, they they don't sound new to you. That's just basic Christianity. What, What does it mean to love God? above everything else. Each one of us has our own individual mountain that seeks to be the priority in our life and can draw us away from God or 
make God play second fiddle and be the servant to get us those things. But I think there's a a much more common and pervasive problem in the church today. And it's not so much individual mountains that we each have our place that we run to, but it's more the idea of a corporate mountain, an idol that the American church strives to, to obtain, or at least give back. For many years in American history, a, a biblical worldview shaped our nation. A belief in God and and the Bible and His morality was a given. Now, we didn't always live that out. We're all more than aware of the darker side of American history. I'm not sure how many Christians actually existed in this country. But God and church, in some at least generic sense, was the American way. But that has changed in the last 40 to 50 years, and it makes us very uncomfortable. We liked it better when the church was the cultural influencer and the final voice on morality. And it should be, in the sense that it's God's world. But we're living in a society that is increasingly unsympathetic to Christianity. When I was in high school, a Christian worldview might be mocked or looked down upon as unsophisticated and uneducated. I remember as a student, uh, this, I think it was my uh, junior year, and we were studying uh, the Scopes Monkey Trial. And that was the uh, decision in the early 20th century that evolution could be taught um, in public schools. And I don't know what I said, but somehow it became clear that I believed in God, and I believed that God created everything. And I distinctly remember uh, the student that sat in front of me just commenting, oh, you're one of them. Today, Christianity isn't just mocked or looked down upon. It's thought to be the problem itself, isn't it? And it should be silenced. And we're not too good at responding to a world that feels that way about us. We don't like being the minority voice in an increasingly pluralistic and postmodern world. We want our cultural influence and our respect, and we want it now. And too often we argue and fight to get it in ways and and tones that don't sound very Christian to me. (laughs) 
And I say that in that condescending way as though I'm not like that myself. <laughs> Again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting we just throw up our hands and do nothing and uh, give ourselves to f- defeat and not engage. The Bible is true. God is real. And there is a case to be made. And God sends us out to speak His truth into this world, but He calls us to do it in love and in gentleness, doesn't He? It's not just what we say, but how we say it. It's not just being theologically correct. It's actually incarnating the love of God so that people see what Jesus is like. Let us think, speak, and act in thoroughly Christian ways. We can't say we love God and then treat others who are made in His image as subhuman just because they disagree with us. And that's true for how we treat the world, those who are not part of the church, but that's also true in how we speak to one another. Whether it's politics, Trump, Biden, mass vaccines, homeschools, public, there's a lot of disagreement in this room. How do we we disagree and show respect? How do we listen? I may think Pat's wrong, and he is so often. (laughs) So the odds are pretty good. But he, he thinks I'm wrong. But how do we engage with one another actually listening and trying to understand? Why don't they see it the way I see it? Now, the the unbelieving world, they're lost. They, They don't have spiritual eyes to see. But at least in the church, how do we engage in saying, this is a brother in Christ. Why doesn't he read and see Scripture and the implications the way that I do? And I would love to tell you that in pastoral meetings, I am just the epitome of love and grace. But when they disagree with me, I act the way you do when people disagree with you. How could they disagree with me? Isn't it obvious I'm right? Jesus said in Matthew 7, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. which is the same thing he says in Galatians. Loving one another is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Treat others the way you would want them to treat you. 
It's not enough to be theologically correct. We need to speak the truth of God and live it out in how we treat others. We need to speak truth in love, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Don't you sometimes would just stop? Gent- no, and it keeps going. Gentleness, self-control. You know, for the last two semesters on Wednesdays, we've been dealing with how to speak in, in the apologetic process, how to engage, how to speak truth, to counter arguments, but to do it in a way that honors Christ. And what was the theme verse of the whole series, 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts exalt Christ as Lord. And what's the result? Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We're good at telling people why they're wrong and and why we're right. We give a defense, but so often we do it in an offensive way. And when they don't agree with us, we feel unsure and unsafe. But having our culture agree with us isn't our refuge. That's not our salvation, is it? And that's not our job to make them agree. Just like the gospel, it's not our job to make anyone believe the gospel. But what are we to do? Speak truth in love be as persuasive and winsome as possible, and then leave the results to God. It's hard to respond correctly when the world seems to be going in a different direction and our voice is left out. David addresses that in his psalm this morning in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When he says foundations there, he's talking about the moral foundations of society, the created order that protects humanity from chaos and self-destruction. That's our world, isn't it? The foundations, the moral order of things, is being destroyed. Righteousness is now called sin, and sin is called righteousness. So what should be our response? What can the righteous do? We can go on being righteous. We can take a stand against evil by doing what is good. Think of Paul in Romans 12. This is verse 17 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. 
Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. That's counterintuitive. That doesn't make sense to the unbelieving heart. But we have a new heart. We have the mind of Christ, and there's something in us that we fight it that says yes. The one thing we must not do is flee to our own mountain and find hope and rescue in anything other than God Himself. We answer the question, what can the righteous do, with another question. To whom shall the righteous look? That's the answer. What shall the righteous do? Who do you look to? We look to the Lord, which is what David does. Verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple, and the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Our Savior, our Lord, in whom we take refuge, is the sovereign God of the universe who sees and rules over all. Our God is in His holy temple, and so He looks and He sees and He has a moral standard by which He will judge every thought, action, and motivation of the hearts of all men and women. He is on His heavenly throne where He rules. He sees and He knows what is happening. David's enemies shoot in the dark. They are hidden. But they're fully known by God. God sees and He knows who they are, and He will deal with them appropriately in His own timing. David may not know who or when, but he is aware of the danger that he's facing, and he understands the reality that he is in. It is a dire situation he faces, but his mind is reminded of a greater truth. David's enemies are trying to destroy him. That is real, but there is a bigger reality that the Lord God is his refuge. David, he sort of responds in his heart the way Joseph did generations earlier. In the book of Genesis, do you remember Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery? And years later, he becomes prime minister of Egypt. His brothers think he's dead. 
He becomes the second most powerful man in the world. And when he reveals himself to his brothers, they're afraid, and rightly so. And what does does Joseph say to them? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. You had evil motives. You had a wrong agenda. But your agenda does not do God's purposes in my life. As we entrust ourselves to God, as we take refuge in Him, we learn to trust Him even in the midst of the most difficult times. In fact, God uses the difficulties to build our faith. Amid His response, David says what in verse 5? The Lord tests the righteous. The difficulties of life are the testing grounds of our faith. It's where God purifies it and thereby strengthens it. Think of James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full work in you, that you may be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. Difficulties, suffering, trials are God's means to build and mature our faith as we learn to lean on Him. There is something bittersweet about those moments in life when we can do nothing but trust Him. We want to be in control of our life. We want to do something. But in those moments where there's nothing we can do except entrust our hope in Him, there's something sweet about that. As our heart says, Lord, if something is going to happen, you have to do it. Now, I do not want to go through what our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are going through. But this morning, as they gather, as the church, in homes all over that country, as they meet in the name of Christ, and their lives are at risk, their faith is being strengthened as they learn to take refuge in nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is their Savior. He is the only hope that they have. I do not want to suffer. I want a life of ease and comfort. I want to grow old, strong and healthy, and just close my eyes and drift away. But I don't get to decide that. I don't want difficulties and trials. I want ease and comfort. But God loves me too much to leave me with weak faith. He wants to build my faith, your faith, so that we learn to love, trust, and obey Him more each day. 
the Lord tests the righteous. So what is the result? Verse 6 and 7, Let God rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, He loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold His face. In the end, all sin will be judged by the Lord who sits in heaven. Sin will get its just rewards. The wages of sin, the, the thing that sin earns is death. And not just physical death, but eternal death. It's the place of fire and sulfur. Jesus says in Luke 7, it's where fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you are outside Christ this morning, that's the road you're on. But there is good news for you today. Verse 7, but the upright, the righteous, will behold his face. Who is the upright? Who is the righteous? We're not righteous, not in ourselves. Jesus is the righteous one. He fulfilled all righteousness, and now he is willing to share that with us when we trust him, when we find our refuge in him and not ourselves. God becomes man. He lives a perfect life. He does what we were supposed to do. And then He dies on the cross receiving the judgment that we deserve. And when we trust Him, we place our faith in Him and believe that for ourselves, then we are united to Christ. And His death to sin is our death. And His righteousness is now ours. And all those who are in Christ will one day see Him face to face. Right now we behold His face dimly as in a mirror. But then we will see Him as He is. And when we see Him, we will be like Him. My friends, the storms of life, suffering, comes to everyone. The rain will fall, but where do we go for shelter and safety in the storms of life? Jesus said He Himself is the rock upon which we should build our life. And when the storms come, our life will stand firm. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy we thank you that you saved us from our sins that you made us your sons and your daughters and that we have a new heart but so often father 
uh, we take our eyes off of you and we see the circumstance of life and all the things this world promises. And we drift away. This morning, help us to once again see you more clearly that we would have confidence in you. And so we would live lives that are bold and daring because we're not afraid, because we know that you care for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.